Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. This episode, Deceptive Tourists, we're doing a two-for-one today, hmm. uh, three-for-one in fact, we're going to look at 10cc Mark II in their pomp really, hmm. when it was all going so well for a while, Deceptive Benz, Bloody Tourists and the live album in between that, and um, these albums do form, uh, uh, they are of a piece really, yeah. um, 10cc Mark II came straight out of the blocks and had enormous commercial success and uh, I don't think anybody would disagree that um, their best period was immediately post the, the split when they, they both had something to prove Definitely, and you can hear that in these albums mm. really enjoy these later on it got a lot harder um, for Eric and Graham uh, and we'll talk about that another time and that's next door's dog who's called Toto by the way it's the wrong decade <laughs> um, not an 80s, not a tribute to the kind of 80s uh, uh, studio-bound uh, pop warriors. Yeah. Um, I think he's actually named after the, the dog in um, Wizard of Oz, but mm. I digress. Yeah, it was, I think, an incredible, brave leap of faith for Eric and Graham to take the 10cc mantle. I genuinely think they must have had balls of steel. And Eric's probably still smarting from that meeting in Manchester where he's effectively sacked by the other three members who don't want to work with him anymore. He goes away, licks his wounds, and then Graham comes crawling back. So don't squeeze me like a toothpaste, like a putty in your hands. I'm gonna go away. I'm gonna blow away. I can't help now listening to Deceptive Benz, to have that in the front of my mind. Uh, we were talking about listening to How Dare You with, with the, a certain filter on now. I'm afraid I've got that with Deceptive Benz now. When I first heard the album as a teenager, it was just a, a great, poppy, fun album. And like I said last, last time, I didn't even realise it, it was 10cc as a two-piece. Mm. And it's a shame I can't rewind and and listen to it afresh now I, I get this sort of tug in my mind listening to all of the 10cc mark ii stuff that both of them are really missing their former colleagues deceptive bends for me is the one where they miss them the least and it feels a, a bit like Kevin Lowell have left their DNA in the studio on this one. We mentioned it on a previous podcast, didn't we, that there's remnants of the Godly and Cream approach. Songs with different movements, uh, an attempt to, at, at wackiness and, and comedy, for example. Graham freely admits this, that they were trying, perhaps trying a little bit too hard to rekindle that Godly and Creamness. I think you're right. Uh, personally, I prefer Bloody Tourists. Mm. And I think that might be something to do with the fact they'd kind of relaxed into what the new configuration w was by that stage. They don't, I, on Bloody Tourists, I don't get a sense that they're 
they're no longer trying to mm. to emulate what the band used to be. They're they're a new, well-oiled machine, and I know people find its slickness a little off-putting, mm. um, and the democracy that they had going with it, the new four members of the band. But I think that works really well. Uh, um, yeah, song for song, I prefer Bloody Taurus. That's I, interesting. I just, yeah, we'll we'll get on to to that album later. But, yeah, for but, me, for me, with Bloody Taurus, there's a, a a dilution. Uh, you, yes, the democracy, that's, a, that's a, a good word to use for it. On Deceptive Bends, you've got Paul Burgess doing his best to kind of, effectively with a mask on, almost pretending to be Kev. He's let free a little bit more on Bloody Taurus. And it's interesting that Bloody Taurus is the, the first album where any outside collaborators, well, outside-inside collaborators, uh, turn up uh, on, on certain numbers. And we even have a non-10cc lead vocal as well. Yeah. Now, I'm struggling with my, my personal issue with this. I'm a, I'm a kind of 10cc Mark I purist. So it's bloody purists for me, Paul, I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry about that, that, the awful pun. It's, something is lost. I think Deceptive Bends is less variable in terms of the quality of the songs. I like side one of Bloody Tourist, but I don't like side two. Right. And pound for pound, I think I think Bends has, has, has got better songs, to be honest. But music's subjective, isn't it, Paul? And, you know, we all come to these albums you know, with our, with our own tastes and our own baggage. Um, Deceptive Bends almost does it for me. It, it's, it's certainly my favourite of the, of the Mark II albums, mm-hmm. without, without question. Let's um, open uh, the track discussion by talking about the things we do for love. Yeah, brilliant song, and uh, I think that's the best post Kevin Lowell song ever recorded by 10CC. Without any question, uh, in my mind. it's it's um, obviously they had something to prove on this record, um, but apparently this one came together very quickly. Um, Eric talks about. Um, they, they'd regrouped, you know, the, the, the tensions between uh, Graham and Eric had, had been, you know, put to bed at least for a while because they were working to, the, to this greater goal, if you like, of, of, of proving themselves after, after the split. And I believe this was the, the first track they worked on. They obviously had brought it to Kevin Lowell, yeah. who disliked it, and we've, we've, we've talked about that. Uh, in fact, it being a catalyst for for the split itself. Yeah. But some people, sorry, Paul. Some people blame the Gizmo, don't they, for breaking up 10CC? Arguably, things we do for love is as guilty. 
people in love as well. Yeah, I mean, 10CC are, are responsible for breaking up 10CC. It's <laughs> personalities and, and, you know, talking about a particular song or a particular incident or even a particular device in the case of the gizmo, I think is to miss the point. And I've banged on about this before, but I believe uh, those four characters weren't really destined to stay together no. for good. Um, anyway, so Things We Do For Love. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful song. It started off apparently as a slow, bluesy um, ballad. Again, surprise, surprise. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's a similar sort of thing to I'm Mandy. Um, yeah. Uh, but in this case, although we don't know as much detail about what, what Graham brought to the song as we do for, as, as what he did for I'm Not In Love, because... Uh, we know he, he uh, came up with the introduction, for example, mm. which is another classic uh, introductory hook. Yeah. Um, most of the song apparently was Eric's. Uh, it talks about... Um, it's an autobiographical song, isn't it? Yeah. Despite its somewhat uh, sh- frivolous nature, it yeah. actually it- makes points about not being able to get through to... Uh, your girlfriend, your fiance. Yeah, it's, it's Eric and Gloria's early early courtship, isn't it? Yeah, that, about. that's right. Gloria's father was a how does he describe him? A gruff, no nonsense Yorkshireman, I think mm-hmm. he calls him. And sometimes the phone went down, or you know, it was it's difficult to to talk to his in laws when he was driving in a van somewhere on on the moors yeah. with a, the mind benders. I don't know. So, um, yeah, it it rings true. But it's a gorgeous melody, lovely chords. Yeah, Um, so many chords as well. Yeah, it's very complex, but it's one of those songs, it doesn't sound complex, it's it's radio-friendly, draws the listener in. It's got a lovely ascending two-part backing vocals um, during the verse. I really particularly like those. Yeah, and that... Fabulous burst of a sort of four part harmony on the Ooh, you made me love you. Yeah. Really gorgeous. Yeah, well, nearly all the harmonies are Eric, I think. Yes, that's uh, right. I think the bass says, harmonies might be. Yeah, Graham, exactly. But... Graham's doing the, 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 the harmonies lower down. And you don't you don't miss at that point. You're not missing Kevin Lowell uh, instrumentally, vocally, or from a writing point of view. It's a, it's a direct hit, a wonderful song, and uh, I believe worldwide it actually sold more copies than I'm Not in Love. Yeah, that's staggering, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in no way is it. It, it's not their signature song. I'm not in love. Is is their signature song? Mm. But it's um, it's you, you hear it on the radio a lot. You still. do. It's, I think it's in second place on Spotify. Ah, okay. As the, the, the most streamed song. And, a and in many ways, deservedly so. Oh yeah. And and I'm I'm really <clears throat> kind of in hindsight really pleased for Eric and Graham. It's not quite two fingers up. At their, at their pals, but it was it must have been a, an incredible feeling of, of vindication. It's the best way of answering, isn't it? By it doing is. your job. I mean, yeah. we're speaking not long after Steve Smith has scored double centuries in the, the first <laughs> test, uh, and that's um, not that I support Australia, folks, but uh, that's the best way of answering your critics. Don't mm. say anything, just do something. 
and uh, and this was a hit um, prior to consequences being completed so they were they were sort of off and running and and it must have been a tremendous feeling uh, for them when they when this was a worldwide success while Lev- uh, while Kevin Lowell was still kind of mucking around with their with a gizmo yeah. and five years away from having their first hit as a duo yes that's right yeah interesting very interesting 10 cc and the things we do for love funnily enough it's not the first single from deceptive bends that i remember from the time i think my first awareness of this record was seeing the video for good morning judge on top of the pops Quite a fun video with the two of them sort of dressed up as as a judge and and crims. Uh, quite fun, I seem to recall. I'm not, I don't think I've watched it since, to be honest. I saw it the other day. Well, I had to giggle because uh, one of the personas uh, Graham uses uh, as as a judge, he looks just like he does today. He's got sort of large horn rim glasses almost <laughs> and, and grey curly hair. Yeah. So it's <laughs> rocking the Gorman look of 2019. <laughs> uh, it's He's good... never really looked like a, a pop star, has he, Graham? <laughs> no. It's a, it's a great video, isn't it? I mean, it's quite ahead of its time. Yeah. It, 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 it's obviously done on a relatively low budget, but yeah. it, it's, um, it, it's... Yeah, I like it. Well, yeah, probably one of the first <clears throat> sort of story videos as opposed to a performance video. Yeah. It really hit me as a kid. I think it's it's tremendous fun. It's a great energetic way of getting the album started. <laughs> Obviously, it, it comes out of Eric's love of, of blues and guitar licks and all the rest of it. A little bit basic. I mean, I, I prefer other things on the album, and I certainly prefer Things We Do For Love as a song, because I suspect, like you, I, I like the kind of more complex chordal structures and so on, all those layers of harmony and so on. But I think I think it's a great single and a big hit. Yeah, it's a great... It, it's um, a good contrast to Things We Do For Love and, and a, a, worthy, a worthy hit. Yeah, a good, strong opener with that lovely... Down burst of guitar at the start again definitely a, a, an Eric concept that was embellished by Graham yeah. well good morning Judge yes it's back again I'm in trouble so it's back to the pen I found a car but I couldn't pay I fell in love and drove it away 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 People in Love was a single in some markets, wasn't it, Paul? In America, uh, I believe it was a single here. It just, um, yeah, it was a single in the UK. It just flopped. Mm. Um, which are you surprised by that? Slightly surprised that they had two, you know, a number six and a number five hit followed by nothing. I would have expected it to be a minor hit. Probably didn't worry them too much at the time because they'd had those two big hits. Although it was indicative of, of something to come not too much farther down yes. the line. In fact, they were only ever to have one more hit. Yeah. Um, well, in, in Britain, anyway. Yeah, yeah. People in Love. Again, we've discussed this song at length um, during the Consequences uh, or the Road to Consequences episode. It was another song that um, really opened. Open the rift 
between the four of them. Mm. Uh, I'm not it, it, for for a, for a song to cause that much friction. It's it's a little underwhelming. It, it's a, mm. a a pleasant but slightly workmanlike ballad. Yes. plays the I'm not in love card with a very straight bat, doesn't it? But it's it's not in any way as interesting in its harmony or melody. Uh, almost as if Graham didn't have a hand in in trying to embellish the chords or anything. It's just, it's obvious. It's like it's written with, with, with wax crayons, if that makes any sense. It, it doesn't touch the sides with me, the song. Yeah, I think Eric was, as we'll see as we get later into the history, he was he was drawn to straight-ahead love songs, yeah. from, uh, writing about romance. Um, and this is one of the first times that that was able to, maybe the very first time that a, a really something really straightforward mm. um, was available to be ma- to be made, if you like. And uh, it's okay. It's time to go. What about the other songs on side one? Yeah, I quite like Marriage Bureau. Um, That's a real Graham song, isn't it? A yeah. Graham lyric. Very much so. And there's always there's something, always something very honest, kind of unassuming, I think, about, about Graham's lyrics. Self-deprecating often. I like that honesty. Yeah, he plays the... It won't, it won't say he plays the everyman card. That that in, that sort of seems to indicate he's putting on some kind of persona, yeah. which of course he is because he's writing a song and imagining himself in a position. But um, it seems natural. It's, it's almost a bit like a Gilbert O'Sullivan type character, mm. you know, that comes yeah. across in some of his material. In a little while from now, if I'm not feeling any less sound, I promise myself to treat myself and visit a new. Poking fun at himself. Yeah. Showing his, his weakness and his, his, his fragility. And, and, and that's good. And so often we've seen, we saw with, with Channel Swimmer, usually some kind of wry, smiling punchline at the end of a song where the story definitely reaches often a, a happy ending or an ending that makes you smile. The fact that this is a couple going through a divorce and at the end of the song they rediscover liking each other and decide to give it another crack. Yeah. It, and that, that feels very Graham to me. Yeah, it's a bit like a sort of low-key version of the Pina Colada song, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Without needing to waste money placing ads in the paper. Hey, do you know you remind me of someone? 
I'm not so keen on Modern Man Blues. It, it was a reasonably good live track. It's on the live album, isn't it? Yeah. Interestingly, on the live album, it's it's it appears to be in the encore. I'm not sure if that's the order they'd have played the songs. Okay. It's the last track on the album, I think. Okay. Which seems like a really an inappropriate encore. You'd think at least they could do the the twelve minute Rubber Bullets. Uh, well, they weren't going to be playing Rubber Bullets. No, or stage, if they did play Rubber Bullets on the night, they certainly didn't want to show evidence on on, on a statement live album. Modern Man Blues, to be completely honest, and the chorus is a bit, a bit pat. I think you know, gone, gone, gone. And as you know, I'm not a massive fan of of kind of blues rock. And I'm up here. I've got the lyric sheet in front of me here. And I can I can hear the chorus in my head, but I'm looking at the lyrics of this. I can't even remember how the verse goes. I can't either. And I've heard it dozens of times. Um, so yeah, sorry, chaps. If there are any massive fans of this track out there, you'll have to write in and tell us why you love it. Um, I've noticed for the first time here that they've got a guest oboist on it. Right. Okay. What on that track? Yeah. <laughs> One thing I do like about it is that it's got a, a Graham lead vocal. Uh, I always like like to hear him sing, and obviously he's got more of an opportunity here with where there just being two of them to step up to the mic a little bit uh, often. I read a really interesting review quite recently. I think it was on a website called The Quietus. Have you, have you come across that one? I'm aware of the, the website, yeah. Yeah, there's some really good reviews on there. And uh, one of their writers makes a lovely observation about 10cc as a four-piece. And he says that here's a four-piece band where every, every member wants to be John and Paul and George. <laughs> but they're also happy to take their turns as Ringo as well. And uh, it, it makes me think of our, our sort of tongue-in-cheek comments about Graham sometimes taking the Ringo role with, you know, film of my love and so on. And here, of course, he, he's got a, a little bit more of an opportunity to be more of a John, Paul and George. Has to be, really. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're there's the there's a lot of, of space to fill. Yeah. Um, but I think rather than the, the Beatles analogy... For me, it's it's more like a, a, a Genesis analogy. 75, Gabriel flies the nest after Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and that extensive world tour. Now, that was a big hole in Genesis, but, of course, they, they came back uh, very, very quickly afterwards with, with an amazing album, and they went from strength to strength commercially, of course. But with this, with 10cc... They've lost 50% of a, of a well-oiled machine where they're really interdependent on each other's ideas. And if you transplant that seismic split in, in, back into the Genesis analogy, it's almost as if Genesis lost 
Gabriel and Hackett at the same time. And that is an incredibly difficult hole to fill. I really admire how well Eric and Graham did. I don't think it, it, it hits any of the heights of the of the original four albums, but it, they have a, make a blooming good fist of it, don't they? Yeah, I think they were they were running on adrenaline to a certain extent. I mean, yeah. they they had so much to prove. Eric, yeah, I was going to say as well as that drive to to make it work. Yeah, and that that can be very powerful and can can uh, can unleash quite a lot of energy, creative energy. I think. Yes. Two, we talked about Honeymoon in B Troop a bit on the Road to Consequences album. Yeah, I think that's my second favourite track on the album, actually. Okay, it's also the one where they're most consciously aping the Kevin Lowell approach, yeah. I think. Yes, yeah, so they're, they're trying to sprinkle the magic ingredients of Clockwork Creep and things on there, aren't they? And it works nicely, it's got it some does. lovely melodic parts. It's Yeah, it's... every single... Every single fragment of it is is fun, well written, catchy. Yeah, it's got that tautness of of a, of a, of a clockwork creep, or, or in a way. Sure. I really like the fact that the first two tracks of Side Two are incredibly short. Honeymoon's less than three minutes. Flat Guitar Tutor is less than two minutes long. Mm. Which is at odds with a lot of the later material as we get into the 80s and then eventually for the, for those ill-fated albums in the 90s. The tracks go on forever, in my view. Yeah, Almost as if Eric refused to record a track that was less than four and a half minutes long. Do you I know what I'm that, saying? that was just a, a, a sort of malaise of the time, though, wasn't it? You look at other yeah, album true. tracks just crept up in length um, and, um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work. The idea of three minutes became four minutes and looking back, it makes quite a lot of difference. Yeah, good point. Diminish responsibility You're denying person to see To be suspended I bought a flat guitar tutor. It's a, it's a fun track. I mean, it's certainly... Uh, they'd never attempted anything quite like that before, so it can't be said to be aping Godly and Cream, really. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever heard... A song like that before, where doesn't fam- uh, um, Hallelujah isn't far off, where it comments about the chords that it's using. What by um, Leonard Cohen? You mean? Yeah. Oh, the 
the minor fall, the major lift. Yeah. Is that what's happening there? The fourth and fifth is, is actually I describing. Think, I think it does. I've always assumed it does. Oh, okay. I've never, I've never bothered to get my guitar <laughs> I think out. I might, that might be quite a wrong, large assumption. Well, it goes like this: the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. The baffled king composing hallelujah. Major catastrophe. It's a minor point, but gee, augmented by the sharpness of your sea. What I'm going through, hey, to be with you in a flat by the sea. Here, here famously. The, the lyrics describe the chord letters mm. um, and uh, make an almost uh, sensible story out of, out of mm. the chord letters. Contrived it's, as hell for me. Well, it had to be contrived. I mean, you try making a story yeah, out but it's of not funny letters contrived. only A to G. Yeah. Well, that, that, I think they were very. They knew they couldn't su- sustain a long song. So yeah, and just, I, I like I like the fact that it's so short. It's just a ditty with a, yeah. then an instrumental jazzy piece on the end. I and it works it, nicely uh, from that point of view. It's a lot of fun. I certainly. It's a song that um, uh, it creates quite a lot of uh, notice. Certainly. Um, a few f- friends of mine who aren't necessarily 10CC fans, they know that song, whether they've sat down there and tried to, to sort of play it. And, mm. and it's, it's a song uniquely, I suppose, before the advent of YouTube or something, that you didn't need to know the chords for. Because mm. th- theoretically, if you just listen to the lyrics or even read the lyric sheet, you can actually have a go at, at working it out. Yeah. So it's a little nod to sort of amateur musicians out That's there. That's right. Dad, can you show me how to play a diminished responsibility? <laughs> <laughs> kind of fall in the in the i like it camp rather than i, I dislike it but yeah yeah I, I i struggle with it uh but not as much as i struggle with you've got a cold which is such a catchy tune with that wonderful fuzz bass i think eric plays it on on the previous album graham plays it here that sound borrowed from from me mr mustard i love it uh, and it gives it a real personality. You got it, got it, but I'm, I'm frustrated and annoyed that it's a song about having a cold. It's a bit. Uh, they're good at kind of workaday, everyday subjects, but I think that's almost a bit too pedestrian. That subject, isn't it? Yeah, it's too. Yeah, to a slice of life, isn't it? Do we need? Yeah, why bother? You know, so what? It could have been. A, it could have been a great catchy song. I think if they just found a lyrical hook from somewhere else. Is it lazy writing? Are they deliberately being tongue in cheek, doing a bit of a doing a bit of a Kevin Lol? I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Uh, again, disappointing. Thank you. 
ask Sean, what track does um, Jean Roussel play on? Is that you? He plays on this one. He plays electric piano and right. organ. How, how come? That. How come he was on there? Was he just passing by Strawberry at the time? I doubt it. Jean Roussel is a very well-respected uh, session musician who plays on, amongst other things, um, every little thing she does is magic. Uh, I think he played for Carly Simon, Cat Stevens. He plays on a personal favourite of mine, the album Numbers. Yeah. Um, lots of other ones I can't remember. I can't imagine he was just strolling down Waterloo Road. <laughs> I think they, it was one of their low-key but conscious efforts to, to bring in an outside collaborator to, to, to beef up the sound, and I think it, think it really works. Yeah, Tony Spath is playing piano on, on Guitar Tutor. T- Tony Smat- Spath sorry, is, is an acolyte, isn't he? Was he not an engineer at Strawberry? I believe you know a bit more about the, the sort of strawberry a bit, collective. A, a bit that uh, I'm learning slowly. We will perhaps pass along that question to Peter. Um, might be a good time to mention Del Newman, the yeah. brilliant arranger who uh, who's who worked with um, Elton John, notably on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Yeah, fantastic arrangements there. Charles Aznavour and even Squeeze. Um, in the later years and sure. brilliant arranger and he I think is uh, arranges the strings only on People in Love and Feel the Benefit which we'll talk about in a minute we will but again that's a very savvy use of uh, they're not trying to expand the band but they're bringing in outside collaborators for the recording of the album yeah uh, and they were um, they were really good choices I think on this record definitely I and mean, they've got some great musicianship in the shape of Paul Burgess, haven't they? Uh, you know, apart from the drums and percussion, he plays uh, wild piano on on Good Morning Judge. He was playing synth in concert, wasn't he, with with the four piece? Yeah, so in that in concert. Oh, wild man and tracks yeah, like that. Yeah, seen playing keyboards. Yeah, we should say something about Paul Paul Burgess, who, who um, I feel a bit bad now. In a previous episode, said he I don't like his drumming as much as. Kevs, but he, he does a fantastic job on this record. Yeah, and I think he's quite a similar drummer to, to Kev. Yes, yeah, rock solid. It's difficult to know what parts he came up with, but on something like The Things We Do For Love, the the way the drums are structured are, are really nice. Yeah. It, it's an integral part of the song, and he must have had a, a really big part in that. Obviously, he was used to working with the guys already, having been their live drummer. Um, since the start of their touring years, so he, he he was able to slot in, but he really had to step up at this point, and he he, he does a great job. Yeah, I I completely agree. Now, my, my big, big elephant here is Feel the Benefit. I get the feeling, Paul, and reading so much online, particularly on the Facebook groups, Feel the Benefit has, seems to have taken on legendary status. Many people feel it's Eric Stewart's finest moment, and I, I feel I'm obliged to love it, but I don't. Can you see where I'm coming well, from? Well, I'll love it for you. I'll, yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll defend it. You don't have to work too hard. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll praise it because I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's unique in the canon. 
they, they never did a song before or after anything like it. it. Sure, it kind of moves into, I'm doing air quotes here, people, classic rock territory. Yeah, which, the John Miles music kind of uh, coffee table stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, that if that stuff is done well, yeah. um, it, it can be majestic. Yes. Uh, and in parts, this is just as majestic as something like The End by The Beatles. Mm. I'm not so keen on the middle part. Their attempt to recreate the middle of, I don't know, Don't Hang Up, maybe? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it, almost certainly it was a separate song of Graham's that they just decided to put in the middle. Yeah. It, it doesn't fit at all to my ears. It's wedged in there. Uh, yeah, they needed this. Clearly, this was going to be a long epic song, and they needed something. It, it, yes, they, they, they've shoehorned something in, perhaps rather than write a transition or mm. a transition into another part or another movement. But that aside, the, the, the first movement and the third movement, uh, I think they're magnificent. And it's a really good lyric. Um, it was Eric's grandmother, wasn't it, who came up with the phrase, feel the benefit. Yeah. Um, Although I, I've also heard that phrase from others, I think. But it clearly meant a lot to him. I think she, uh, he says in his book that she lived till she was 97, I believe. Okay. Um, and, it, yeah, it's a kind of submerged tribute to his, to his grandmother. It's right. actually quite, it's quite an emotional song. Mm. That, and that initial inspiration for it may point to, to why it, it sort of conveys that, those feelings. You went out on the street without your shoes on. You didn't listen what your mama said. She said you won't feel the benefit. Won't feel the benefit. And if we all went out without our shoes on, tell me where would we be? Where would we be? Again. It's Eric's uh, social uh, railing against social injustice. Yep. And if all the people in the world could all sing together, it may sound like a platitude, but mm. it's un un undoubtedly coming from a from a from a real place. Yeah, and he, Eric does wear his heart on his sleeve often. Doesn't yeah, he? exactly. And he he, he he seems to genuinely care about homelessness and people less fortunate and so on. Yeah, it's like a little it's a little prayer in a way, and it doesn't offer any answers, but it it, it says. Wouldn't it be nice if if the world could be like that? There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. And the 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 out you know the outro the guitar solo is it's a beautiful solo. Well, yeah, I was thinking about the end. I've just mentioned it. What I think Eric achieves here is, I think I'm right in saying he he's playing all the guitar on on the outro. I don't think it's a kind of dueling thing with Graham. I know live. Graham came into his own with those fantastic bass solos. Yeah, Graham does play some lead guitar on it, as does Eric. Okay. Graham's playing, it would seem, the lion's share of the of the the, the rhythm guitar parts, uh, the acoustic uh, twelve string, and so on, and and his 
obligatory auto harp as well, which is really lovely. Right. But I, I really feel that that's an Eric it's solo. A, I think so. Well, it's actually what he accomplishes here. I think is to be like a one-man George, uh, John, and Paul. Mm. You know, at the end they play the famous um, three-handed solo with two bar phrases. Oh yes. Um, Eric is using what sounds like four-bar phrases to make a statement, yeah, and then handing off to himself and 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 playing another phrase. Unless it is him handing off to Graham, as it says here, Graham is playing lead. Do you it, not think? Do, it, does it have the movements broken down, or is it just to feel the benefit as a whole? It just gives the, the credits for the entire track. The whole track. So I mean, I could be wrong, and I would ha- be happy to be corrected if if I am, mm. but it. I think that refers to Graham playing guitar during the second part, possibly, okay. or elsewhere. This sounds like, you know, those soaring lines, they, yeah. they, they're really only going to come from Eric. Yes. And I think so. No, I, I agree. It's a beautiful solo. It's one of those rare solos that you, you can sing because it's so melodic. Yeah. Reminiscent of Dave Gilmore or Steve Hackett. Yeah. Um, really my favourite kind of guitar solos ever. Yeah, it, it grows and it grows. And towards that last phrase, that, you know, that the music ascends and ascends, it's like coming over the top of a roller coaster. And you, he's built it to a pitch where it has to end right there. He's all, you know, and then it tumbles down and ends suddenly. I think it's a fantastic piece of work. Mm. Um, there are marvellous moments in it even down to that gorgeous tinny guitar sound that opens the track and then is reprised later on. Again, he's using his usual EQ trick, isn't he, to take the bass and the middle out of it, but it's fantastic. He's using the same kind of very prominent delay effect that he uses so much on the How Dare You album. It's a great sound. Yeah, I think that's drop D tuning on the guitar, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's very reminiscent of Dear Prudence by the Beatles and and the finger picking pattern is very similar good spot uh it's uh yeah it's an iconic intro it's uh, it's a wonderful track mm. love it yeah i i think it's a really good track but like i said before i don't love it it might be that the, the lyrics feel a bit care bear to me it's slightly saccharine sentiments even though i know they're born of genuine sentiment mm-hmm. weak godly and cream middle section Uh, but that's me being very very harsh a little bit stodgy in terms of its its size and length i think it's very long isn't it Uh, it, yeah it's over 10 minutes isn't it yeah 11 and a half minutes i don't actually again it doesn't seem 11 and a half minutes to me so that's always a good sign if an epic track doesn't seem to go on that long yeah it sometimes feels longer than that to me if i'm not in the right (laughs) mood for it yeah i'm being churlish here i know i'm being churlish but perhaps i'm i'm you're missing Dev- Kevin Loll, aren't you? you, you I am. And you remember I said ages benefit. ago that I was a Kevin Lollist. Yeah. I am. Yeah. And I'll, I'll hold my hands up. I like L as much as I like Deceptive Benz, uh, which, you know, might sometimes surprises myself because the actual songwriting on here is better than on L. Mm-hmm. 
But I, I love the wackiness. The wackiness that Eric later admits that he misses. Hmm. I, I really miss it. I'm going to need to sit in the dark alone with this tune, aren't I? Uh, yes. And, and you've, you've, um, you've inspired me right to, to revisit it properly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll, um, I'll take my lines and, and uh, I will consider myself chastised. Okay. <laughs> you can go on the street and take your chances. But if you do, you better do it right. Or you won't feel the benefit. Won't feel the benefit. Spin the wheel and take your chances. And your number might come up. Though the odds may be in favor of the heart. Amazingly, the very same year as Deceptive Ben's coming out, the band released a double live album from shows they recorded at Hammersmith Odeon and the Apollo in Manchester in the summer of 77 and uh, release it soon afterwards. Strange, because it, it, it's basically Deceptive Ben's live, isn't it? Well, I think I, th- I think timing is all. They're still making a statement here, aren't they? Yeah, and uh, there are just, I think, two songs on it that, that feature the pens of, of Kev and or Lol. Right, which two are those? Second Sitting okay. and uh, Mandy Fly Me. It is a statement, and, and really a, a disingenuous statement. It's a political one, and I think it's almost like they're deliberately chopping an arm off to prove that they can carry on without them. And you know, some of the some of the songs on there are, are, are really not among my, my favourite 10cc tracks. You've got a cold, for example. Mm. People in love. Even ships don't disappear in the night which has a very, very different arrangement. They go for a slower, bluesier version of that, which is interesting. It doesn't really get me excited. Modern Man Blues, of course. And they, they make some strange decisions on the album too. Having Tony O'Malley singing lead vocal on Art for Art's sake. Eric sings it so brilliantly. I'm disappointed that he he lets someone with a, a much inferior voice, if I can be so bold. That was the other part of the political statement. This was the point at which the band was um, <clears throat> forming into a proper Mark II with additional musicians being yeah. featured front and centre, and that that was part of the process. Yeah, and great musicians too. Yeah, I was uh, the past week listening to a CD that I bought um, from the King Biscuit Flower Hour concert in '75, mm-hmm. and even though I really enjoy it and it's fun, it's kind of rambunctious, but it's quite shambolic in places and quite rough. Mm. The band are neither singing or playing particularly tightly. Bit of a mess. And I, I certainly can't describe Live and Let Live as a mess. I think it's very, very proficiently played, very well recorded. And the instrumental performances particularly are great. And Eric's voice is terrific throughout. If you 
disappointments on it, like for example in I'm Mandy Fly Me, the middle section goes straight 4-4 for one part of it, which isn't quite as as dramatic and effective and different as, as the recorded version. Maybe it was uh, born out of practicalities. I mean, maybe... The, maybe it was too hard to do. Yeah, it, it, it was too hard to do well, uh, possibly. And, they, you know, they, don't know how long they had to rehearse with these guys. Mm. Uh, and they were all, apart from Paul, Bur- Paul Burgess, brand new, weren't they, to the band, so... Yes. Um, it's I, a very proficient live album. I must confess, I don't really like live albums anyway, and yeah. it's a long time since I've listened to it. They're hard work, aren't yeah, they? They can be. Particularly, uh, a lot of live albums are touched up after. I don't know whether this one was. I mean, I think it's... Can you imagine Eric... Remember, it's, it's Eric alone with the tapes. <laughs> can you imagine him not touching things up? Yeah, but nearly, nearly every live album is sort of the lower lip starts to tremble a bit when you realise that all those kind of albums like Wings Over America and oh, even Abbott. One of my favourites, Live and Dangerous by Thin Lizzy. Yeah. We used to love that uh, that album in the, sort of, in the fifth form at school. And then I found out that the only thing they kept was the drums. Yeah. And they, and they probably replaced those as well. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it, it's not an album I've listened to that many times, probably three times in my entire life, Paul. Right, that maybe once and, more than that. Um, and once, one, one or two of those times was a couple of weeks ago when I was, re- when I was uh, doing research for this. Uh, yeah, a, a statement, it, it, maybe it was Eric getting that fuck you off his chest. Uh, and it, it certainly it, it sold well. Hmm. Yeah, did it? It was a, it got on the charts. Yeah, a similar kind of success to sheet music, I think, and it stayed in the charts for a long time too. I'm interested about what Eric says about Live and Let Live and in general about 10cc's live shows he made strenuous efforts to make the live shows sound as much like the records as 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 they could even to the point of using exactly the same mics on the instruments and miking them up in oh really okay. yeah in a similar way and he kind of gets close to it on this album in places but there are a few things that inevitably disappoint i guess Apart from the fact that I, I'm sure I can hear at least Graham's vocal being double-tracked in places. Oh, OK. So going back to what you were wondering about whether they touched it up, yeah, I think they did. There are a few things that, that sort of surprise and disappoint a little bit. Wall Street Shuffle is a, really nothing more than a reminder of, of what a fantastic production the original was here. It doesn't quite work. Things We Do For Love similarly I think is is a shadow of its studio self but other tracks the the rockier more straightforward ones uh, are particularly strong lead vocal notwithstanding I think art for art's sake is is a great live version it works terrifically well and I think possibly my favorite aspect of the album is how prominent Graham's bass is in the mix Mm. great to hear him up front yeah, we both love him as a bass player, don't we? Uh, but it, it's particularly strong. And he almost rescues people in love here. Oh, OK. Because uh, the bass is so strong. 
it, it kind of it, it kind of wakes me out of my slumber and almost <laughs> makes me want to listen to the damn thing. <laughs> so well, perhaps it should have been mixed higher in the yeah, original. Well done, Graham. Well done, Graham. Perhaps if, if, perhaps if uh, he'd done just a bass solo version, Kev might have got into that. Might have kept... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what a great idea. We've heard the voodoo boogie version of People in Love, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, many times, and it, and it keeps kind of popping up on the Facebook group and, every, and everything. I hadn't heard it until the last few months, but it's creeping in through the back of my mind, into the front of my mind. I almost prefer it, you know, even though it's a mess and doesn't work at all. <laughs> I almost prefer it. You'll take it because it's got Kevin Lol in there. Yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. It, it sounds like sort of deliberate, belligerent favouritism on my part, doesn't it? Hot on the heels is that the next album, they're still pumping out albums probably more often than one a year, aren't they, at this point? The, the momentum is massive with, with 10cc in the 70s. Yeah, little, the, the, the Bloody Taurus was released in September 1978 and preceded by Dreadlock Holiday in July. So just a, a slightly over a year since the previous album. Sure. And... Yeah. Um, it's a, a game of two halves for me, Paul, but I'm very curious and very eager to hear why you like the album so yeah, much. Yeah, I need to defend it. I, 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 just, I just like it. I find it's, an, a, it's, a, it's a go-to album for me. Mm. Um, it's just full of great pop songs. Um, it's a very comfortable listen. That, yeah. that could be a negative, but by that I mean... Um, very, it is very listenable. It's listenable. Uh, I think they're just great good songs all the way through with occasionally some great songs i think eric was still reaching higher with his production and skills mm. um there are points on this record and i'll try and point a couple out maybe as i go if i can remember where the sounds he gets and and the, you know are, are fantastic um particularly on for you and i yeah that's i love the sound of that tune the world is full of other people Ooh. Take a look around Yeah, well, well, we'll start there rather than the, the better-known Dreadlock Holiday then. I love For You and I. Um, I think it's probably, well, possibly my favourite on, on the record. Um, it was released as a, a single... Yeah, I uh, bought it, that. I... In the US only, I think. Yeah, I've, I've got it... I've got it on a sing. I oh, know I've got it as a B-side to "I'm Not in Love." Yeah, that, I've I seen it. I think it came out in around 1980, maybe around that sort of time. Yeah, kind of re-release of what was that then? A re-release of "I'm Not in Love." Yeah. Okay. Um, it's maybe not quite a single, but it's it's a it's a beautiful song. Um, another um, sort of meditative lyric, really, about the space or the you know the 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 relationship between people Could answer everything. 
Yeah, I, I love the synth, the use of synth on the song, and it, and it starts with that that high pitched single synth note, doesn't it? It kind of fades in. Yeah, almost out of tune. Yes, um, I think it's the vibrato on the synth, isn't oh, it? Oh, that's what it is. And yeah. the the Moog trumpets, which I think are played by Rick Fenn here. Okay. Um, um, sound sound great. I really like the synth solo near the end of the song. It reminds me of of the late seventies stuff by Gordon Giltrap. Okay. Interestingly, uh, another act managed by Harvey. Oh, I didn't realise that. Is yeah. That right? I mean, okay. people know Gordon Giltrap best for for the holiday theme tune, the Heart Song, that was a hit, uh, and he used uh, amazing session musicians, people like Simon Phillips on drums. Okay. And, and of course, Simon Phillips turns up on Windows in the Jungle. I'm not sure there's any connection, and I'm not even sure why I'm mentioning this, but it's just the synth sound and the the, the lovely quick melody reminds me of of the stuff that Gordon Giltrap was doing. On, on songs like Heart Song. It's a beautiful sound for you and I. It feels to me in my stomach as if Eric's making another stab at rekindling the I'm not in love moment, which I think he's doing with lazy lazy ways as well. Okay. Um, obviously, it's, it's not up to that standard, but there's a beautiful richness and lushness about the production. It's not bland. Uh, he's not overusing strings, for example. That uh, There's gorgeous melody. It's a great vocal. Yeah. Uh, the harmonies are, are amazing. And there's a nice contrast between the, the slower, non-percussive moments of the song and then the, the, the more... Yeah, but it hasn't got a heavy backbeat. Hand claps play an important yeah. uh, part there in sort of bringing that deafness of touch. Yeah. I think, that, yeah, it's the, the, the dynamics in the song are pretty subtle, but they're... They're, they're very pronounced, nonetheless. Yeah. I think it's, it's a lovely, it's a lovely track. I agree, and it's it's my favourite tune on the album. Oh, too. okay, that's yeah. interesting to hear you say that. And I think the the lead single, the the, the massive hit, is terrific. Uh, I, I loved it at the time. And I think the chorus hook is superb. I love the fact that they they use it on uh, cricket grounds and uh, and and so on. Yeah, not long ago, uh, Graham retweeted. I think it was Ben Stokes at that point who was had, yeah. had to go to court. Yes, and somebody shouted out from the crowd, "I do like cricket," or "Don't you <laughs> like cricket?" It's another one of those songs that has entered the consciousness, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. And that's and of course it was written from. Two separate real-life experiences, yeah. uh, none too happy for Two either. holidays happening at the, about the same time, uh, was th- it? Well, Justin Hayward and Eric did go on holiday together, but I think the one of the 
incidents was from a separate holiday that Justin had, I think. Um, so it's like, it's quietly an edgy song as well. But um, yeah, it's just incredibly catchy. Graham says that they were playing the song through and then he just sang I Don't Like Cricket <laughs> in the rehearsal room and, and they had their hook right there, which was a moment of inspiration, obviously. Yeah, superb. I don't like cricket, It's interesting what you say, it, it, a bit edgy. There's certainly, in, in terms of today's, if we, if we put today's lenses on, mm. I, I don't think you get away with a song that has a dodgy Jamaican accent sung by a, a, a white guy. They've done a few dodgy accents, haven't they, over the years? The, there's the opening to Hotel mm. and uh, the dodgy French accents on One Night in Paris. That sticks in my craw a, well, a little bit, but time, it's all part of the fun. Yeah, different uh, times, and some yeah. some of those accents have become less acceptable than others. Yeah, I mean, it's all in the uh, other artists are doing the same thing. Kate Bush uh, is always putting on accents in songs, yeah, and good that point. that kind of dates her, her work to to a degree. I think I think it's a it's a terrific song. Um, I like the atmosphere of it too. I love the use of um, tambourine on the outro. Okay. One of the most inspired editions of a simple tambourine part, perhaps mm. second only, and perhaps we can hear it to Prince's "Sign of the Times," which is probably my favourite. But I like the way they add um, they add uh, the tambourine just for the outro. It's June. I think the reggae feel, I mean, they brought reggae uh, into their set of influences here really for the first time. Yeah. And it was, they were victims of their own success because once, because this song was so groundbreaking for them in terms of sound, they suddenly every, every album had to have at a reggae track. At least one reggae track, sometimes one. three or four. It became their default setting and yeah. it just sounded watered down in the end, but here it works brilliantly. silver chain He said I'll give you one dollar I said you got to be joking man It was a present from my mother um, And uh, we haven't really mentioned the expansion of the band yet so um, this was, a, you know, the opening track's a really good showcase for the new six-piece band yep. We talked about Tony O'Malley and he was quickly replaced by Duncan Mackay. Yeah. Um, uh, Rick Fenn on guitar, of course, and the two drummers, Paul Burgess, now joined by Stuart Tosh, previously of, of Pilot. And we're both very fond of Pilot, aren't we're we? We're both very fond of Pilot. My first you, single was, was January. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear. I'm sure listeners of this <laughs> podcast or certain of them will be big Pilot fans too. Yeah. Oh, ho, ho, it's my... Um, so they had a, a really cracking bunch of musicians, all sporting perms at this point. It was the perm, 
Um, uh, the inside cover of... Uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, at it now, and yes, every single one of them. They look a bit like ELO, don't they, in that picture? <laughs> all, all kind of Kevin Keegan clones. Yeah. Um, it was also having a hit around that time, wasn't he, with Head Over Heels? Yeah. Have you seen in that cover, Sean, uh, Graham is holding the... I think it's called Airport, Airport International. Airport International, that's right. My friend Maff... Uh, a very good trivia spot and he, he took some some album to be signed by Graham recently and he also took along a book that book Airport International which he'd found he from a charity <laughs> shop he did and the other members of the current band were sort of looking what the hell is this guy doing but, but Graham sort of nodded in in uh, appreciation in yeah so he was quite pleased that he had that signed by him that's inspired amusing isn't it yeah. <laughs> nice one Math. yeah <laughs> It's interesting, both a, a, a strength and, for me, a, a, a weakness of the album. It's what we alluded to at the start of the podcast, where you've got a few of the songs, namely Last Night, Reds in My Bed and Old Mr Time, that are co-writes with individual new members of the band. And for the first time, interestingly, Eric and Graham have the odd song as a solo composition hmm. which says a lot I think about where the band were going to go in the 80s oh definitely but although I wonder whether on Deceptive Bends the joint writing um, credits were a statement of intent and really there they may have been they the Lennon, have. Lennon and McCartney thing where they, they would write separately but yeah. they'd have joint credit yeah that, that, that's, that's perhaps my feeling it was a kind of statement yeah but uh, here it, it's it's laid bare, isn't it? And they're, they're, they're kind of being honest about the, the, the separate writing process. Yeah. So do you not like the co-writes uh, with, like, Rick Fenn and uh, Duncan Mackay and Stuart Tosh? Not particularly, to okay. be honest. Uh, it, it, it's interesting, though, I, I said before, I think, that I, I like side one way more than side two. Something happens when the needle hits the vinyl... At the beginning of side two, and we have Reds in My Bed, which mm. I've tried to love for, you know, the last 40 years of my life. <laughs> I don't. And, and I, I love Pilot. I really like that jaunty piano, for yeah. example. I like the, the, the hint of quirkiness that it hints at. But... I don't like I don't like his vocal on the on the track. Well, it's funny you should say that. It was only pretty recently that I realised that wasn't Eric singing it. I don't think I ever looked at the credits. Mm. I think he does a great job, particularly. I don't think he ever sung lead on a pilot song. I could could be wrong there, but I don't. I can't hear his voice on on pilot stuff. No, so he was really obviously loving getting a lead vocal here. I think he's a terrific singer and does a great job, and it's it's a brilliant song. Reds in my bed. I mean, I was surprised. It wasn't a hit. There's a fat man who offers a change of scene. Says he'll guarantee my sheep will be clean when I get on the outside. So, you know, slightly worrying here. They were returning to their early form. They've now had, if you look at the, the last three singles, mm. People in Love, Dreadlock Holiday and Reds in My Bed, Two, one of them was a number one, OK? Yeah. The other two missed the charts completely. Yeah. And that was indicative of what was to come. But I'm surprised 
it was a complete miss. I think it's a very commercial sounding, very Beatlesque sounding record. Lovely chords, lovely kind of major to minor change mm. halfway through the verse. Um, I think, uh, and, and Eric's answering vocal in, in the chorus. Clever story. Uh, which yeah, quite, a, quite an unusual angle, isn't it? That whole sort of uh, Cold War thing. Yeah. Was it... Um, we haven't talked about the... Would you consider this, Sean, a concept album? Because nearly every song does talk about travel. I've, re- in- I've read that before, to be yeah. honest. I think that works. To, to some, some degree. It's not true, I don't think, of Take These Chains, Last Night, yeah, but- Lifeline. Take these chains, making yeah. Hang on, let's take those in turn. Take these chains, making love on a sandy beach. Yeah, yeah a bit of a stretch. Lifeline is is literally about the protagonist being ten thousand miles away. Oh uh, no, you're absolutely true. And old Mister Times about time travel. Mm. Um, Not keen on that one. Uh, although I quite like the the catchiness of last night. I think it is loosely a concept album and fits in with the with the fantastic cover. I think the cover's great. The, I, re- yeah. I really like that that image on the on the front cover. You said something interesting last night about the origins of this cover design. I believe I think it was Aubrey Powell again talking that they offered this to Genesis who didn't like the idea. <laughs> so they it's interesting, isn't it? You think these these iconic covers are you know they had to go with a particular band but it turns out they were just kind of on the shelf and then they mix and match yeah Uh, that kind of contradicts though um something else i read an interview possibly with storm thorgerson uh who said that once again rather like they did with the how dare you album they had to listen to the tracks right and detected a thread of of travel and then came up with the concepts oh okay that's interesting Uh, whether that's true um, that doesn't seem to square with what we've just said no, about exactly. but that'd be interesting to, to know I love it I think uh, it's you might be surprised here I think it's possibly my favourite 10cc album cover um, okay it's just such a strong more, more so image. than How Dare You yeah I think so it's just such a strong single image yeah and it's not really alluded to in any of the lyrics of the songs but Bloody Tourist has a dark edge to it I mean when I first saw the title uh Maybe I was in a particular frame of mind, but I'm thinking that could be a terrorist attack. Um, Tourists covered in blood, you yeah, mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why my mind leaps there, but it, it, it has, it doesn't need to be brought out by the songs, and it's not. But, um, you know, it's, it's got that, that, that slightly dark word play in there. Yeah. That's what I felt. I wonder if there's also a reference to them having been on a big tour in, in the previous year? Yeah, yeah, just f- sort of fed up or worn out yeah and that might in turn be where some of the songs come from i suppose yeah um yeah it's uh we're sort of skirting around song to song nothing wrong with that so let's just go back you you didn't like old mr time he looked funny the children called him the No, it's, it's another one that hasn't really lodged in the front of my brain. 
uh, particularly. I find it a bit, a bit bland, a bit weak, I suppose. Whereas some of the other tunes, despite being ever so slightly on the bland side, mm. I really, really like. Shock on the Tube's a good example yeah, of that. Yeah, that. that is, I was I've always mention adored that. the a cappella opening of, of that. I was travelling home on the subway When this vision got on that made a veil And as I casually eyed the classifieds She sat down next to me Even though, cordially, if that's a word, yeah. it's not exciting. I love the sound, and I think uh, the harmonies on the record are, are great. Again, I... Th- uh, I think Eric's singing uh, is just reaching new heights and his yeah. vocal on Shock on the Tube, which just has a little bit of grit yeah. atop that sweetness. It's a fabulous piece of singing. Brilliant contrast, isn't there, between the, 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 the lovely sweet opening yeah. and, the, and, the, and the rocky... She was a Grit. It really, great. it really rocks. Uh, really exciting individual sections and harmonies and guitar parts. I love that track. I'd say, apart from, for what it's worth, apart from for you and I, that's that's my favourite. Uh, leaving aside Dread, Dreadlock Holiday, which is a classic. It's so yeah, you're so used to hearing it that you almost take it for granted. But but those those three are my absolute faves. I, I think couldn't agree more. Right. Couldn't agree more. Okay. Yeah, very catchy chorus, and I, I love that. Graham's sort of low vocal. You're looking for happiness. Yeah. It's great. It's, it's like, very hooky, isn't it? It's like another dream sequence, isn't it? It's like um, yeah. It's like I'm Mandy, but played out on the London Underground. <laughs> Running around the tube naked. Yeah. <laughs> Both of them. Altogether bare. <laughs> yeah, ter- terrific stuff. And, and, and Eric solo composition yes yes of course yeah and, and and that's the first credited solo composition on any 10cc album isn't it yeah and it's his, far. it's probably his best solo composition I, I would i would i would think yeah and a, a downward slide from here but you know we we're kind of preempting a future episode where we uh, we're going to bring in some outside help um to inject some life and enthusiasm into our view of some of the later albums. We're sorry to kind of create a throw a negative pall over proceedings, but Bloody Taurus is, for me, the start of the downward slide. Uh, and it's uneven in my mind, even though you've got some, some big highlights. Anonymous Alcoholic, for example, doesn't touch the sides for me, Paul. Oh, I like it. Uh, of course, a reusing part of Get It While You Can. Yeah. Everybody was having fun. Um, Good point. Instead of ticket, if you try, everybody's having fun. So why be the one? Everybody's having fun. So why be the one who's out in the cold? It's not good enough. You made a deal with yourself. You said you It's a, it's a good track. It's um, 
maybe one of the only tracks which harks back to Godly and Cream, I, I guess, in its kind of use of different scenes. Mm. But I think I think it works well. Um, but you, you don't like side two? Not particularly. I don't think any of the songs is particularly strong. Some of them actively annoy me. Okay. For so, example, so um, Graham's chorus on Lifeline. Lifeline. Very, <laughs> very weak and very annoying. Well, it's barely a chorus. It's just a couple of... Yeah, I, I don't like it. It just, it, it grates on me. And it's not because I've, 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 you know, I've seen my ass because Kevin Lowell have left. There's nothing really about the melody that I like. The telephone line's like a lifeline. You run me cool, you run me hot, love. You take me where I want to be. Ship to shore, air land, seems it's always the same. I always end up with a lame brain. And Tokyo, having lived in Tokyo, Paul, and I'm, I'm not kind of showing off here, I was there for 18 months, and I can assure you that there's nothing in, in this song that evokes Japan for me. Mm-hmm. There are an awful lot of kind of Japanese stereotypical cliches thrown into the lyric. Kimonos and geisha girls from grade one down to three of Tokyo. But I don't think Eric's hit the nail on the head here at all. Am I right in thinking that he'd never been to Japan was, when he wrote the song? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I was assuming he had, but... Um, they did a um, should know um, should know more about their touring activities, shouldn't we? They did they did a Japanese tour, but when was it? Was it after? I don't I don't mm. know I don't know. There's a bit of musical. Yeah, we've been caught with our pants down. We there. have, haven't we? There's there's a bit of musical sightseeing going on. Yeah. But uh, again, a lovely vocal. Mm. It does evoke an atmosphere. Yeah, whether it evokes the atmosphere of Tokyo, I'm not sure. Just going back to Lifeline, I really like that, and it ring it Why? rings. It ring well. Number one, I like the lyric. It just seems heartfelt. Yeah. Uh, I do get the impression the protagonist is the same guy, and I guess it's Graham, same guy as in From Rochdale to Watch Rios, which is a more comical way of looking yeah. at uh, tour separation, if you like. Yeah. But no, I think I think it's uh, ship to shore, air to land. You get you get the impression uh, of. Uh, of not being able to, to, to get through or lack of communication with your loved one. And I think it's got some lovely musical ideas. Yeah, the, the telephone line is a lifeline. That, that's just a little placeholder. I think that the, you know, the, the, the meat of the song musically has already been and gone by then. Yeah, good point. And I think it's, it's a lovely verse. Um, and uh, again, it resolves. There's a lovely musical resolution in the song, I'm trying to picture it in my mind. Telephone line is a lifeline. Then it resolves, and the organ pad comes in. Yeah. And then there's a certain 
balm comes into the situation. If I'm not reading too much to it, you know, maybe he gets through at that point. No, that's I think, interesting. I think it's a really nice song. Okay. But you know you got a friend who's at the other end. Telephone lines like a lifeline. Probably, pound for pound, I prefer Ocho Rios, if only because I find it catchy. And I think it's, dare I say it, my favourite track on side two. It's a bit silly, hmm. and it's got that the fake steel drums kind of flavour going on that they, they, they do revisit many times yeah. on future albums. I think that may be a weakness of having two drummers in the band because the other guy who isn't playing the kit's got to do something. So that, that that might, I mean, seriously, that might be why you get quite a lot of extra percussion coming in because either Tosh or Burgess, you know, generally speaking, they alternate on drums, don't they? So the other guy's, yeah. he's, he's looking at his watch. He's, he's, got, <laughs> he's got to earn his pay. That's right. And I've, I've got these sticks in my hand. What am I going to do with them? From Rochdale to Arcturius from Archerias to Dorking, from Dorking it's back to Rochdale, from Rochdale to Archerias. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of fun, but a bit of fluff at the same time. And strangely, the last track on the album, Everything You Wanted to Know About, hmm. the fact that I, I'm struggling to picture it in my mind probably hints at the fact that I've probably taken the, the stylus off the record. By that point. By that point. I think it's a, a great little track and there's some real musical invention there. There's some lovely harmonised guitar parts which is covered by the vocal almost throughout the track and then at the end it, you, you sort of hear it uncovered. <laughs> I know what you mean about side two. Individually, the songs maybe aren't that satisfying. I maybe I just like the way they flow. I always I've always found that that it just is a very satisfying listen. Side two as well as side one. Okay. It's a smooth record. They are up and running as a machine, but you know sometimes listening to a machine can be so very satisfying. Yeah. It's certainly a nice sounding machine, but it, it's, it's getting pedestrian for me. Mm -hmm. There aren't the sparks flying that there used to be. There aren't any risks being taken. It's less inventive. It's blander. And I can, I can sort of hear Lol and Kev in their sneery way on the L <laughs> track uh, from Business is, is Business. Yeah. I'm hoping we'll, uh, today at some point we'll get round to talking about it. Oh, yeah, we will, yeah. M-O-R <laughs> is good. And then that, that final part where he says, M-O-R is you. And I wonder if they're pointing the finger. Yeah, I was just listening to that track yesterday in preparation for the L episode, and I did wonder whether that, that was a deliberate dig. <laughs> Could have been, couldn't it? You reckon it is? I think it is. Uh, there's a, an awful lot of autobiographical 10cc raw material 
being being kicked around the studio on the L. Yeah, there's some the there's some bile being expunged, isn't there, on L, which we'll get to. Yeah, but, uh, possibly unfairly, but this is the start of 10CC being an MOR band, in my view. Yeah. It, it it doesn't raise my pulse, but I'm very grateful today, Paul, that you've you've carried me through this episode. <laughs> I, I, but Drag, sitting there, dragging just and screaming ha- happily listening to you <laughs> bang on about it I am going to revisit it on, on the basis of what you've said to be to be completely honest and I have listened and re-listened to it prior to, to recording today mm-hmm. but it's still it, it doesn't it doesn't lodge there in my head heart or stomach it's the end of an era and 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 sadly it was almost immediately followed by Eric's very serious car crash. Yes. Well he very nearly lost his life mm. and, and thankfully he, he did make eventually a full recovery. But uh, as he says in his book that the momentum of the of the machine was was slowed and everything ground to a halt. Yeah. And when they came back, um, everything had changed and we'll we'll cover that next time. Sure, sure. Well, thank you, folks, for putting up with my grumpy cynicism in this episode. We hope you've enjoyed the music clips and and you've enjoyed Paul's enthusiasm as well. (laughs) Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks, folks. See you soon. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening well ladies and gents as a special treat as a footnote at the end of this podcast uh is something very special something paul and i have never heard before in our lives and we have a feeling that very very few people have ever heard and this is all thanks to uh the the lovely peter wadsworth and uh, strawberry archives who've unearthed this little treasure. Can I say, Paul, that it's really cheered me up after my, (laughs) shall we say, my least enthusiastic performance in a podcast so far. This is by far the most exciting thing I've heard all day. Well, that's what Dr Pepper was designed to do, isn't it? (laughs) Cheer you up and give you a bit of pep, because this was an advertisement that was recorded, we think, sometime during... Late 77 um, at Strawberry South by Eric and Graham uh, with Rick Fenn um, um, playing guitar and, and doing his first work with 10CC yeah. shortly before he joined the band. This was a 10CC kind of supercharged pop version of um, uh, a Dr. Pepper jingle song whatever you want to call it, that that was already uh, quite well known or the the campaign had just been launched uh, in America and people of a certain age know this song uh, as well as we know, uh, you know, um, everyone's a fruit and nut case or something like that. You know, it's a very well-known advert in um, America. Now, I'm not sure whether this was ever broadcast, but um, it's it's a great piece of work. 
um, written by, there's some urban myth, and I'm, I was unable to confirm this, that this song was written by Barry Manilow. <laughs> it could be true, but I couldn't find any documentary evidence of that. I do know the lyrics were written by one Jake Holmes, who's a, a great writer and can do really sad stuff. But this was a really happy little jingle. Uh, only lasts uh, 30 seconds or so, but enjoy. It is joyous. Oh, <laughs> 